Well, we left off last week in 2 Samuel chapter 22. And if you recall, we had gone through verse 31 here, noting that just as 1 Samuel began with a, with a song, so 2 Samuel ends with a song. And the themes are very, very similar. You have the reversal motif. And in the section we just covered, let's say, let's say in particular verses 26 through 31, I see, I see a heavy overlap, theological overlap, reversal motif overlap with the Beatitudes. You know, the Beatitudes are meant to be strange in our ears. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's meant to be strange in our ears. We would think, why wouldn't you want to be rich in spirit? (laughs) You know, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Everything about the world teaches us the other other way, doesn't it? I mean, blessed are the go-getters and the aggressive. Blessed are those who are laughing and joking and having a good time. Blessed are the winners etc. Um, yeah, the, the Beatitudes all throw that on its head in this reversal motif and theme. If we look at verse 26 of chapter 22, you see the merciful. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. Also then, with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people. So look at that, merciful, blameless, purified, humble. I mean, that's exactly the Beatitudes. That's the the spirit or essence of the Beatitudes. So God is the one who exalts the lowly and humbles the proud. And he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. That's verse 31. And that'll take us up to the new material. So let's simply jump into verse 32. Of course, uh, one more comment in passing. I mean, we've already wrestled and will continue to wrestle with how much, of this is, how much of this is Christ and how much of this is David. And how interesting it is to sort of read both and, and see what, the, what it means to consider both. What it means for this to be, on the one hand, a, a human uh, mortal prayer from the lips of a sinner, and then on the other hand, to be uh, the prayer from the lips of God's sinless and everlasting Son. All right, verse 32, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war, so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. Now, isn't this interesting? Because this is also reminiscent of the armor of God motif, isn't it? You know, shod with the gospel of peace here, the the fleet feet of the deer, training hands for war. You have the sword of the spirit. And, uh, yeah, my arms can 
bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, of course. It's the helm of salvation and the shield of faith in Ephesians. But very similar overlap and motif. Um, for David, again, physical warfare and spiritual warfare are one. And we spent quite a bit of time in Samuel meditating on that. Um, when Christ comes, that changes shape. And our warfare is spiritual, as Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers of darkness, etc. All right, so again, verse 36, you have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. Your gentleness made me great. Yeah, it's such a great statement. Just invites meditation in so many different ways, doesn't it? You know, I, I'm inclined. I'm inclined here too to think on. I don't know. It's going to be a half baked thought, but as as uh, as we well know, my strength is made perfect in weakness, and here it's like God's weakness makes me strong. Your gentleness made me great. You know, there's kind of a an interesting inversion there. Your gentleness made me great. Of course, it's the, you know, it's the mercy and the tender compassion of God toward David. And, and that's how it is. It's for it is how all, you know, for all of us. Anyone who has any greatness whatsoever in Christian terms, I mean, has that on account of the gentleness of the Lord. Hmm. could sit here all day and just think on that. It's so great. It's so great. Verse 37, you have a wide place for my steps under me, or you gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. Hmm. Boy, I've experienced that. It's subtle. It's really subtle. Because you're just, you're just um, I mean, maybe I've noticed this especially in preaching and teaching. You don't always know exactly where you're going, but God does. <laughs> and he provides, he provides that way in which, in which we can walk. And I, I mean, I, what's, what's true for preaching and teaching is certainly true for um, life. It's analogous for all of life and for different aspects of life. He makes, he makes a way for us where we don't see it. And, it turn, and he even makes a wide place that we might be secure, that our feet do not slip. David continues, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. Yeah. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. Now, again, as we, as we consider this, um, not merely from David's perspective, not merely from ours, but you know, then, then you, you reopen this in terms of putting these words on the lips of Christ, making these words central uh, in regard to him. And that's probably, that's probably the proper and fullest understanding of these words. Because as Christ himself says, you, you search the scriptures, it is they that speak of me. And so here too we have, you know, you, you have Jesus who takes on our flesh in order to bear our sins, in order to fight for us against the devil the great red dragon, the two beasts of revelation, the principalities and powers of darkness. And it is God who, who arms him and, 
It is God who makes him great precisely in his humility so that through the cross is his victory and his, his foot does not slip. And then, the, then you have this, I mean, what is true for David that is like both the physical conquest of those who worship false gods. It's, it's united in Christ. It's, it's really he's separated and saved human beings from the principalities and powers of darkness. And so then these verses, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Is, it's like the casting out of demons that he does in his ministry. And that in and of itself is a microcosm, of course, for what he'll do on the last day. I consume them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise, they fell under my feet. And for our Lord Jesus, that's not a physical sword, of course, but it's the, the sword, that, the two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All right, verse 40. For you equipped me with strength for the battle, You made those who rise against me sink under me. Oh, think of all the times Christ bested bested the teachers and experts in the law and men crafty in thought and politics, the ways of the world, and Christ beats them. Uh, Sometimes with just a word, just a one-liner. And of course then for David too, God, God certainly caused David to conquer where all the odds were against him, humanly speaking. You equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's those who had acted hypocritically and in wickedness. They cried to the Lord after doing great evil, and he heard them not. He did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. I noticed the, I mean, the the trampling component, and that that resonates with the language we've been going through, the imagery we've been going through in Revelation on Sunday morning, where it's the the trampling of the of the grapes and the wine press of God's wrath. And the making the enemies the footstool, that kind of motif all present here. So, of course, it's true enough for David insofar as the, the historical circumstances bear it out. But it's all the more true for the victory of Christ uh, over the devil, over sin, death, and the devil. You delivered me from strife with my people. Boy, you can think of like David and the strife and the civil wars. You can think of Christ, his own receiving him not. Even being abandoned after his John 6 sermon. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. How is that true for David? They were the military power of the time. How is it true for Christ? Totally different. (laughs) In his kingdom where he's crowned with the crown of thorns ruling over the nations in grace and mercy in, the, in this, the day of salvation, so that as many may be saved as possible before the day of his glory, the day of his wrath. He kept me as the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. Hmm. It's just, <laughs> 
I mean, that's, that's us as Gentiles with Christ. And of course, you see David with the other nation states around coming to serve him. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. There's there's the key. I mean, there, there again is just the line that really is thematic for uh, all of First and Second Samuel. You know, I who was lowly David, I who was lowly Christ, you exalted me above those who rose against me. I was exalted, they were lowered. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. Also, also, look at, look at all the references to the nations. We are, we are frequently told that in the Old Testament, salvation was just for the Jews or just for Israel. It's not right. And this is one of the key places where uh, the kingdom of God, the reign of David, the Messiah, um, is for all people and over all nations, that God might be good and gracious, that God might be just and, and do vengeance on the evildoers. But, th- but this isn't New Testament only theology. This is Old Testament theology. The New Testament simply picks up on this and sees the kingdom of, of David's son, our Lord Jesus Christ, um, as, a, as a global kingdom. But you can certainly see it here already. I will, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his Messiah, <laughs> to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Paul makes the argument in relation to Abraham that offspring is singular. The same argument could be made here. David and his offspring, singular, which would be Christ. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to his Messiah, to David and his offspring, to David and his Christ forever. Just beautiful. Just beautiful. And you can see why, why Matthew takes great pains to show that Christ is in the line of David, that he is the offspring of David, and yet also the offspring of the woman. And that goes, uh, that goes all the way back to Genesis. So all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to David. And indeed, all the way back to Abraham. Okay. Um. That is, that is the end of what is called David's song of deliverance. And then we have the last words of David, which, strictly speaking, aren't the last words of David. They're really rather his last will and testament. Um, we're going to see that uh, David is with us to the end of 2 Samuel and also a little ways into 1 Kings. Okay?
Um, any thoughts you have on that? Uh, I mean, for crying out loud, I can hardly do it justice. A song like this is meant to be meditated upon and just dwelt on as I'm fighting the urge to do. But, um, yeah, any thoughts you have? Any, anything I missed or anything that raises a question in your mind? Okay, on to the last will and testament of David. Now these are the last words of David, chapter 23, verse 1. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. And so look, son of Jesse is to bring to our minds, remember Jesse is a man of no real standing, and David is the youngest of all his sons, wasn't even there when the prophet went down the list. So this, this statement right here nicely encapsulates the theme of 2 Samuel and the theme of so much of the New Testament, of Jesus' own preaching. David is the son of Jesse. This is his oracle, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. From those depths, God took him and raised him on high to be the greatest king of Israel. The anointed, the Messiah of the God of Jacob the sweet psalmist of Israel. Of course, how can we forget that not only does David do all of these uh, very larger-than-life political-type things, but he's uh, penning the psalms, the, the hymnody, as well, and throughout his life. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. This verse is sometimes taken... Uh, as, a, as a good description of what we mean by inspiration um, in the technical theological sense, not inspiration the way you know you might be inspired by a sunrise or a sunset or inspired by the flowers or the rain or something like that, but the Holy Spirit speaks by me. His word is on my tongue, David says. So in other words, these things that I have written, these things that I have penned, they're not coming from me. They're coming from the Holy Spirit. Um, it's different for David because he's an author of Scripture. But in a way, I know every pastor experiences this, and no doubt every Christian does too from time to time, that the, that the right words, God's words, what he, is, what he has spoken and given to us in the Scriptures, um, if not word for word, at least in terms of content and essence, uh, come to us right in the moment we need to speak them and we speak them. You know? And you just have to acknowledge and recognize, like, yeah, if it was just up to me, I had nothing. Um, so, <laughs> uh, this is so true. I've heard, I've heard one, um, one pastor actually come out and say this uh, after like 50 years in the ministry or something. And... I, I, was, I was glad to hear it because I had long thought the same thing. What, what do you, how do you prepare for, for when someone says, Pastor, I need to talk to you, and they come into your office, and you have, you have no idea what they're going to talk to you about? How do you prepare? He says, you don't. He says, you do two things. You listen as they speak, and you listen carefully, but more than you listen to them, you're praying to God. <laughs> <laughs> Please give me an answer. Please give me wisdom. Please give me something to say. God, I've got no answer, no solution, no wisdom. I don't even have a clue where to go. 
uh, give, give me something, give me the eyes to see and the words to say. And it's true, and, and he does. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, though, sometimes he doesn't. And you just have to say, that's okay, too. That's for the best, too. Um, I know that I've experienced that. It's not just a pastor thing. That's my frame of reference. But I know I've experienced that as a father. And you can experience this vocationally with people. And sometimes you even say, oh, I should have said that. You know, like an hour later, you're thinking on it. It's like, I should have said that. And you kind of kick yourself. But the flip side is, yeah, well, okay, fine. Get, get what you can out of that meditation. We need to always be prepared. Fair enough. But then meditate a little more deeply. God had reason and purpose enough that that wasn't on your lips at that moment. So we don't know what that is. We have to humble ourselves. We are what we are. We have what we have. He gives it all. And he's going to work it all for the good of those who love him. So we have to entrust ourselves to him, even with those times where we don't have anything to say. But yeah, this is, this is frequently, frequently my experience um, as a pastor trying to come up with a sermon every single Sunday. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you just you have you can do nothing but thank God because you don't even you yourself don't even know quite how it came together or where you got the ideas or I mean obviously the scripture text but how it all weaves together that's the Holy Spirit so again all of this in a slightly different class and category uh, than David and any other author of Holy Scripture but I just mean to have this uh, meditation with you because it's not as foreign as we might think. That's not as foreign or out there as we might think. So, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Of course, how could this, how could this be fulfilled in anyone other than Christ? Christ who dawns on us like the morning light, causes us to awaken out of our stupor and sleep of sin and death, shines upon us ruling justly, that is in righteousness, Ruling in the fear of God and the, the love and respect for God above all things. Sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So life-giving, you know, enlightening the eyes, giving light and warmth, giving rain that makes the grass to, to sprout forth from the earth and grow. And I think, I think um, well, of course this is ultimately about Christ, you know, this is, this is what we are, as Americans, in, in this, this is what we're craving. We are craving leadership after the image of Christ, after the image of our true leader. We are, we are craving leadership that in any way, shape, or form exemplifies justice and fear of God and humility, um, and doesn't it, I mean, even when you glimpse it, even when you just glimpse it for one moment in one politician, it just makes your heart long, like, why, why can't you be like that always? Why, why can't we have some leader or ruler uh, that, would, that would bless us in these ways? I mean, so, so great is the darkness around us. We crave this light. And, and again, um, you know, David, 
David was that light to his people in a civil sort of way, um, in a way that only points to the fullness of Christ, don't get me wrong, but they were still blessed with his just and God-fearing leadership. Blessed is the nation who has a, a just and God-fearing leader. We all crave that. We all hunger and thirst for that. Okay, verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? A glorious statement. Um, David's, this is true for all of our houses. They either stand with God or fall without him. Not at all unlike our Lord Jesus, who, who talks about the man who, who builds his house upon the rock. And we've seen all the references to God being the, the rock. And so to build your house upon the rock, to build your house upon God and his word, not being hearers only, but doers also, as opposed to building it on the shifting sands of this life. For does not my house stand so with God? And, and insofar as that's true for all of us, it's all the more true for David because his household is the household of the Messiah, the household of Christ. And, and a direct promise given to David earlier in, the, earlier in the chapters before. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. You remember David wanted to build God a house. And God said, I'll establish your house forever. That's what David's referring to here. And of course, it'll be Solomon, David's son, who is able to build the house for God. That is the first temple. Okay, latter half of verse 5. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? You know, if God does not cause us to prosper, if God does not establish the work of our hands. Uh, there will be no value in it, no meaning in it. Okay, verse 6, But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of the spear and they are utterly consumed with fire. Yeah, those are some strange lines there, aren't they? This is where you wish the study notes would uh, do some noting. I, I mean, immediately, because of our meditation on Christ, where you hear these thorns, you know, it goes to the crown of thorns, and, and that thought, the thorns in Eden, the worthless men who are like thorns, all our sins wrapped around him, the thorn, uh, the, of cr uh, the, the crown of thorns wrapped around his head. You know, here the imagery is they cannot be taken with the hand, so rather than he arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and the thorns, the worthless men who can't be taken gently with the hand, who can't be made better, who can't be healed, who can't be brought to their senses, are dealt with then with the, with the iron, with the rod of iron, the shaft of the spear. They're utterly consumed with fire. So they're cast off, destroyed, etc. Which is a very interesting kind of, I mean, to use the Lutheran terminology, a very interesting law gospel motif going on here because the gospel is that even these worthless men, he would, God would take into his hand. 
if he could. But they're so thorny, they won't allow for it to happen. They won't allow for him to be gentle with them. And so then the only recourse is harsh judgment and, and not the hand, but the shaft of the spear and, and not tender compassion, but to be consumed with fire. Yeah, God is long-suffering with us, and he desires that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Why not? Some men insist upon being thorns that cannot be taken with the hand, no matter how much God wills that for them and wishes that for them and cajoles them through his word. They will not have it. They reject him. And that is the freedom of the will we possess, to tell God no. All right, that is... uh, (laughs) That is the last will and testament of David. Isn't that something? He doesn't end on gospel. Um, But it's beautiful, isn't it? And it's worth, I mean, it's worth reading again and again and just thinking about it. And the imagery and the, I mean, the, the revelation of the Lord, the revelation of Christ is wrapped up in all the stuff of creation. The morning light, the cloudless morning, the rain that causes the grass to grow the gentleness of the hand, the shaft of the spear, the fire. Such beautiful, beautiful imagery, Christ wrapped in creation. The incarnation, salvation, the final judgment, it's all right here. It's all right here. All right, any thoughts, any questions you have? Anything you want to add? There's certainly room to add much more. Okay. Okay, well, let's move on through the narrative then. See how far we can get. We may get through it. These are the names of the mighty men, verse 8, whom David had. Oh, boy. Yeah, there's going to be a whole, lot of, a whole lot of these. Okay, I'll go fast. You'll be forgiving. Josheb, Bashabeth, a Tachamanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. That's good data to have in my mind. My son's always asking me these kinds of questions. Could Darth Vader take out one Jedi? Yeah, he could take out one Jedi. What about 10? Then we get into a debate. Maybe 10. (laughs) At what point in time is he overwhelmed? You know? Yeah, these are the kinds of discussions me and my eight-year-old have regularly. Yeah, but here, this is, this is good data. So one man kills 800 at one time with his spear. What are we doing here? Um, David's mighty men, you can see that. This is, a kind of, this is a kind of hall of fame. It's analogous, and the study note even points out how it's analogous to the hall of faith, if you will, from Hebrews, where all the faithful are listed all those who have been faithful servants of Christ from from Old Testament onward. Um, This is kind of a a hall of fame for David, those men who are are faithful uh, to him. So, yeah, here you have uh, Josheb Bashabeth. Verse 9, And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi, He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. 
So basically, he was there. All of Israel chickened out, and he stood. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So here's the second of the three highlighted. Yeah. Uh, verse 11, and next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory. So what do we see in these top three, these first three of the mighty men named? Well, in the first place, God gives them the victory. But in the second place, they exhibit supernatural faith and courage to stand when all others are fleeing and to fight against what seem to be insurmountable odds and if, need, if needed, to sacrifice themselves for the cause of the Lord rather than bring shame to him by retreating. So, beautiful, beautiful motivational uh, lines here, especially when we take them into our New Testament context, um, especially in these times where what we need more of is, is bravery, and what we need less of is the kind of cowardice that seeks to uh, try to appeal to a world that increasingly hates us. All right, verse 13, and three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the, Philist and the, garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate." Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, if you're one of these mighty men, <laughs> you might pause for a second. I think I risked my life so he could pour it out on the ground. But, but, but what David is acknowledging is, why on earth would they do this for David? They weren't doing it for David as such. They were doing it for the Lord's anointed. They were doing it unto the Lord. The Lord's anointed, the Lord's king, the Lord's Messiah is thirsty. We will get him water. And David, recognizing this, in humility, pours it out unto the Lord, says, Look, you all did this for the Lord. This was an act of your faithful hearts. Let it be unto the Lord. And so, uh, they, obviously, then, they would be amazed by that and humbled by that, um, that, that their worship was seen for what it was, worship of the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ. Yeah, we need more of that too in our time, don't we? Serving Christ for Christ's sake. Not because it works or it's expedient or it's going to solve our issues or it's going to be counted 
wise, um, but just for God's sake, just for Christ's sake. All right, so we continue. We continue with David's mighty men and their acts of valor. Verse 18, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, and this is the first, um, let me see if the study note makes mention. No, this is the first mention of Joab. Joab is mentioned tangentially, but never directly. Of course, Joab was the one who had seen to it that Absalom was killed, and Joab had enacted a number of other um, tragedies, treacheries, depending upon how you want to look at it. Joab was his own man, did his own thing. And this is one of the not-so-subtle ways in which Joab is recognized for what he is and uh, excluded from this list of mighty men. So Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the 30. Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. Uh, The three referring to the first three, of course, from verses uh, 8 through 12. Verse 19, he was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. What on earth is an aerial? No one knows. No one knows. If you go down to the study note, aerials perhaps means lion-like men or altar. If the former, if lion-like men, then Abishai defeated two lion-like men, and, uh, and then he killed a lion. If the latter, he destroyed, he destroyed two Moabite altars. So those are kind of your options within the semantic domain. Maybe you have a different study Bible that gives you some different options there, but it's a weird, it's a weird word. I even Googled it, and the internet, much to the delight of my six-year-old daughter, told me that it, Ariel was the little mermaid. Yeah. yeah. I had to scroll through pages to find anything but Ariel the Little Mermaid. Okay, so, yeah, that's puzzling. But anyway, the bottom line, Benaiah, we know, of course, we've already heard he's a great warrior, and he is going to replace Joab. Wait, is this the same one? There's two. Let me see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the one who's going to replace Joab. Uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. So he struck down two Ariels, either altars or... uh, Men who are like lions. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. I guess just for fun. I guess, I guess there was no college football on that day. He said that somebody said there's a lion down in the pit. He says, yeah, but is it snowing? I could use a little extra challenge. Sure enough, it's snowing. Go for it. Okay, fine. I mean, I think that this is when men were men. Luther, Luther has a take on this, where he says that um, he comments on, on the different lion-killing men. Samson, it's, uh, Benaiah, there's others. I can't remember off the top of my head. But he says, he says, this is great proof that just as the world around us is wearing out like a garment, 
so is humanity, so is our physical strength. So this used to be indeed rare, but it happened. But now, this is Luther speaking, you know, 500 years ago. But now who on earth can do this? No one. So, yeah, it's proof of our, of our decline. And, and Luther also kind of reverses this and goes back the other direction. This is why he reads Genesis the way he does, that in the garden, if a lion, let's say hypothetically a lion wanted to take out Adam in the garden, he physically could not have. Adam was strong, not only strong enough, smart enough, could communicate or whatever, um, but was in full dominion over all the creatures of the earth. Luther even goes to, so far as to say his sight was keener than an eagle's and, um, you know, all the different who knows if that's true, but, but what is, I think, what's most true about it is this idea, this idea that we don't often have, um, that the human race is not evolving. It's not like Adam and Eve were, you know, these poor little peons, maybe Neanderthals, and we now have evolved into, into greatness. Um, it's rather quite the opposite. And that, that, to me, is what's most refreshing. Well, anyway, Benaiah goes down and, and kills, a, kills a lion in a pit in the snow. Verse 21, and he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. Okay? The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. It's great. That's great. I don't know. The staff may well have been a shepherd's staff. I would have to look into that, what the thought there is. Um, but the, if so, that's deeply symbolic. Even still, even if not, it's deeply symbolic that he kills the Egyptian with his own weapon. And that, of course, is... Anytime you have that motif in Scripture, it's the cross. Because that is the devil's weapon by which he meant to destroy Jesus. And Jesus takes the weapon... Uh, that was meant to be used against him and turns it against the devil and defeats the devil forever. So that's why that motif is so often uh, cited in the scriptures. Um, again, just, I mean, in terms of themes, you have, you have him um, killing the Egyptian, the oppressor, the enslaver. You have him killing the lion. I mean, these are motifs for what Christ does, right? Killing the, the devil who prowls around like a hungry lion. Killing the the Egyptian enslaver of God's people, etc. So you've got themes and motifs here reflecting, reflecting Christ. Verse 22, These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah of Herod, Elikah of Herod, Helez the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezar of Anathoth, Mebunai the Hishuthite, Zalman the Ahohite, Maharai of Netophah, Heleb the son of Benah of Netophah, Itay, the son of Ribay of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin. Benaiah, here's the second Benaiah, of Pirathon. Hidai, of the brooks of Gash. Abi Alban, the Arbathite. Boy, say that name. Say that name three times fast. Abi Alban, the Arbath, 
Arbathite. I can't say it once. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of A's. Asmaveth of Baharim. I don't understand why people, you know, have a hard time naming their kids. Look at the look at these riches. Eliabah, the Shalbonite, the sons of Jason, Jonathan, Shammah, the Hererite, Ahiam, the son of Sherer, the Hererite, Eliphet, the son of Ahazbai of Makkah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel of Gilo, Hezro of Carmel, Parai the Arbite, Igal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Beni the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Nahari of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab the son of Zariah, uh, Irath Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Um, Uriah. And you probably, you probably noticed a few other names that we've covered before. Um, in fact, uh, some of the study notes do this, directing frequently to First Chronicles, where there's much more information and background given. Um, but if, you, if you're interested, you can look at your, look at your study notes, starting back at uh, verse 24, and they give you some of the background covered, if not here in, in First Chronicles, as to why these men make the list. All right, well, that would be a fine way to end it, but the Holy Spirit saw otherwise. So we have, uh, and I can see why he did. Hopefully you will too. But, but we, have, we have some things to wrap up here, even if we can't get through it today. Chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel. Oh, by the way, yeah, Joab should have been in there, but Joab's not there, is he? All the people related to Joab, no Joab. A mention of Joab, but no Joab. And now Joab mentioned here. So this, like, in original context would have been a pretty, pretty stinging indictment. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as, they, as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Eror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan. From Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. 
And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the the men of Judah were 500,000. All right, verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Why was the census taken? Why, why did kings take the census? Um, in, the, in the time of Christ, and, and even frequently, it's, it's for a reason of uh, taxes. It's for a reason of taxes or, or otherwise implementing some form of control over the people. But, um, but here, here, it's really the vanity of David and the vanity of, of Israel. We are at our peak. We are at our prime. We have destroyed everyone. How, how strong are we? Let's, this, is, this is the national act. Again, maybe it's just David's act, but of, of taking off your shirt in the bathroom mirror and flexing. You know? <laughs> or, <laughs> or in our culture, taking selfies and then putting on the beautiful filter, right? This is like, how awesome are we? That's this move. Um, so this is, this is not good. Now, there is a lot of complexity. There's a lot of complexity, though, just in the grammar of the text and what's going on. Um, look, at, look at chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. I mean, that in and of itself is kind of weird. Look at the study note. For reasons known only to God, he allowed Satan to tempt David. Motivated by pride or thirst for power, the king ordered a census of his army. And then here's Chemnitz, one of our Lutheran theologians. God is said to have incited David because it was a punishment for sin. Which is, you know, God punishes sin with sin. That totally makes sense. Hmm. I didn't get as much time as I, as I would have liked to look into this verse and, and prepare thoroughly because, you know, in verse 1 anyway... I don't, see the, I don't see a reference to the devil. But why does, it, why does it say, why does the study note then point out, for reasons known only to God, he allowed Satan to tempt David? Yeah, it's curious. I wonder if that, I wonder if that, must, that must come from 1 Chronicles. It must come from a source other than, a parallel source other than 2 Samuel. Like I said, I wish I had more time to get into it. Um, it's a peculiar and interesting interesting uh, section. If you drop down to uh, 24.3, that study note, where Joab questions David, why does my lord the king delight in this thing? This note says, Joab recognized that David's action could bring guilt on Israel. Which is kind of odd, you know, that Joab would note that, but not David. Of course, David's David's conscience catches up to him. As is so often the case, so frustrating as a sinner, isn't it? Verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. After. Thanks for nothing, conscience. I mean, that's just, that's where our sinful nature has become so corrupted that in the moment where we need our conscience, conscience is silent. And then after you've done this thing that maybe, maybe you knew, maybe you didn't, Maybe you just didn't even think about it. Then after the fact, blammo, the conscience nukes you. 
Yes, did you have a thought or a question? Um, when it says that God's allowed Satan to tempt David, um, isn't it like when God, like the free, free choice, and, and he knows that once we attempt it or once we are exposed to something that where our hearts are, Mm-hmm. And it's going mm-hmm. to show how, you know, without God, we, we, we're going to fail. And that's, I mean, what he says, allow. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the same way that God, how, how in the Bible says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. In the same sense, could that be? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, to be sure, it's not that God. It's not that God causes David to sin. Um, I did. I did as you were as you were mentioning because it just brought to mind first or first Chronicles twenty one, um, verse one. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, "Go number Israel." Blah 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 blah. blah yeah. Yeah, and then it's just completely parallel. So that's what the study notes referring to is is that parallel text, First uh, Chronicles twenty one, one. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? No doubt on account of their faithfulness, their uh, idolatry, etc. I mean, Israel was never without idols, and he incited David against them, saying, "Go." And so, how does God uses the devil, according to First uh, Chronicles? And so David is, is incited against himself, against the people. He's deceived by Satan. He falls, and um, God punishes sin with sin. So, uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, it's very similar dynamics, very similar dynamics. Okay, so then, then verse 10, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Very different than Saul. Very different than Saul, if you remember. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Such a great prayer. Such a great prayer. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. (laughs) Man, this this is a heavy final chapter. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Isn't that an incredible line? Let me fall into the hand of God, but not man. God is merciful, man isn't. I love it. Yeah. I'm really confused. Oh, yeah. (laughs) David senses, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel. So he gives him the order to go number Israel. Mm. Well, I think if you read, if you read 24.1 in conjunction with 1 Chronicles 21.1, 1, 
where it very plainly says Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Then, then it, basically the way to read that, these two together is you'd say that, that the Lord was angry at Israel um, and he incited, that is through the temptation of Satan, David to act in such a way that God could bring judgment upon David and upon the people. Yeah, well, I agree. I agree that um, if all you had is 2 Samuel 24, 1, if that's all you had, uh, 1 Chronicles 21, 1, yeah. If, if all you had was 2 Samuel 24, 1, we might, we, I think we would have to read it in a different way. It, you, who would insert Satan there? Yeah. Um, but, but the Holy Spirit uh, records that it was indeed Satan. In First Chronicles twenty-one, one, and so then that that enlightens our reading of Second Samuel twenty-four, one. I mean, again, I think I think we can make this thing get get really complex. It's actually, in fact, really simple. Israel sinning, Israel's collective corporate sinning had angered God to the point that He wanted to punish sin with sin and then enact a punishment upon them. And so that, this is what that looked like. He punishes sin with sin, that is with David's desire for a census, and then punishes David and the people um, because he's already anger, angry from them because of their sins from the get-go. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. I think that that's the, the simplest reading. And it makes, I mean, it makes sense. It's not out of character for the scriptures or or God, or, or his uh, interaction with Israel. All right, we are two minutes over. I better stop here. We've all got to get to our, our lunches or our labors. Um, let's simply end 2 Samuel next week, and we will, do, uh, we will jump into 1 Kings, where we'll, we'll have at least the first uh, boy chapter or so. I can't remember. Yeah, it looks like the first chapter or two, chapter and a half. Uh, we finish out. We finish out David's life, and then off we go um, into into Solomon, and then, boy, shortly thereafter into the into the divided kingdom, as it's called. All right, the Lord be with you.